Well, as we continue through the gospel according to John, we've come to John chapter 2, verses 12 through 22. I originally was going to preach through 25, but we're just going to do through verse 22 this morning instead. So um, if you would just begin by reading with me together this text, John chapter 2, beginning in verse 12. After this, he went down to Capernaum with his mother and his brothers and his disciples, and they stayed there for a few days. The Passover of the Jews was at hand, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. In the temple, he found those who were selling oxen and sheep and pigeons and the money changers sitting there and making a whip of cords. He drove them all out of the temple with the sheep and oxen, and he poured out the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. And he told those who sold the pigeons, Take these things away. Do not make my father's house a house of trade. His disciples remembered that it was written, Zeal for your house will consume me. So the Jews said to him, What sign do you show us for doing these things? Jesus answered them, Destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. The Jews then said, It has taken 46 years to build this temple. And will you raise it up in three days? But he was speaking about the temple of his body. When therefore he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this, and they believed the scripture and the word that Jesus had spoken. Amen. That's the reading of God's word. Before the fall, Adam and Eve lived in the presence of God in the Garden of Eden. After they sinned, however, you remember, God drove them out of the garden sanctuary. And he ordered a cherubim with a flaming sword to guard the way back in. And since then, fallen humanity has, as it were, lived in exile from the garden, away from God's presence, barred from returning because of their sin. And indeed, The rest of the Bible from Genesis 3 onward could be viewed as the story of how God, by his own wisdom and grace and power, brings man back into fellowship with himself. The tabernacle and the temple play a big role in this story because they represent the first step in that process. The tabernacle was God's tent where he took up residence among a remnant of humanity that he had redeemed out of slavery in Egypt and taken as his old covenant people. Indeed, just as God had placed cherubim at the eastern entrance of the garden of Eden, so he had cherubim woven into the eastern entrance of his tabernacle. It was a way of saying, I think, something of what was lost in Eden, I am restoring to you now. Just as Adam and Eve enjoyed fellowship with me in the Garden of Eden, so now you will enjoy fellowship with me at this tabernacle. It was a new meeting place between God and man. Later, after bringing the Israelites into the land of Canaan, 
a good land flowing with milk and honey. God ordered his anointed king, Solomon, to build a permanent house for his presence to dwell in. You see, it was like Eden all over again. Except only kind of. Because unlike Adam and Eve in paradise before the fall, Israel was corrupted by sin, leaving them guilty and unable to approach the presence of God in the temple without priests serving as go-betweens, mediators, and offering sacrifices continually on their behalf to make atonement for their sin. And even then, the people were not allowed to enter the temple themselves, but they remained cordoned off from the presence of God by a series of walls and curtains. And the priests, who did minister inside the temple on their behalf, were not allowed to enter the innermost room, where that cloud representing God's presence actually resided, except the high priest. And that only once a year on the Day of Atonement and not without blood for his sins and that of the people. And over all this was the obvious realization that that glory cloud which filled the tabernacle and then the temple was only a limited manifestation of God's presence. Indeed, the whole system with its endless succession of priests and sacrifices with its statues of cherubim and garden features in the temple building, all of it indicated that this experience of God's presence at the tabernacle and then the temple was not a full recovery of what Adam and Eve had experienced in the garden. Something better was needed. And this only became more obvious as the nation of Israel fell into idolatry and the temple fell into disuse and disrepair and defilement over time because of Israel's sin until finally it was destroyed with the city of Jerusalem by the Babylonians in 586 BC. The prophets who ministered at that time had foretold the day coming in the future when the temple would be restored and would be better than it was before, when Israel would finally experience the kind of rich and full fellowship with God that Adam and Eve had experienced in the garden. And a remnant of the nations would even join them as well. Well, here in John chapter 2, 12 through 25, 22, I believe that question of when would that happen what would it be like begins to be answered let's take a closer look at this text together and i will show you what i mean in saying that now in john chapter 2 verses 1 through 7 the text right before this we saw jesus perform his first miracle changing water into wine at a wedding in the Cain and Cana of Galilee. After this, we're told in verse 12, he went down to Capernaum with his mother and his brothers and his disciples, and they stayed there for a few days. Now, the city of Cana 
It was up in the hill country west of the Sea of Galilee. And after attending the wedding there, Jesus traveled down out of the hill country to Capernaum, a a significant fishing community on the northwest side of the Sea of Galilee. The other three gospels tell us that Jesus would eventually move from Nazareth to Capernaum, but for now he simply stayed there for a few days. And since Jesus, it seems, was now the head of his family, he was Mary's firstborn son, Joseph doesn't seem to be on the scene anymore, well, his family was with him at the time of the wedding, and so he brought them down with him to Capernaum to stay for a few days. Now, the reason why they would all stay together, instead, for instance, of Mary and his brothers perhaps going back to Nazareth after the wedding, is probably explained in the next verse. There it says, the Passover of the Jews was at hand. You might remember there were seven feasts which the Lord prescribed Israel to observe in his old covenant law, but three of them, Passover, Pentecost, and Tabernacles, as they're sometimes called, were more important, more prominent than the others. And the law required every male Israelite to go up to Jerusalem three times a year to celebrate those feasts together in the presence of God at the temple. Sort of ultimate church service, corporate worship for the old covenant community. And so it seems that Jesus brought his mothers and his brothers with him to Capernaum because the, the Passover was coming up and it wasn't long before they were all going to need to make that pilgrimage up to Jerusalem, the capital city, to celebrate the feast there according to the law of God. Now, by the way, as an aside, one of the things that we are going to see is that many of the events recorded in John's gospel took place around various feast days. So, for instance, John actually mentions three times that Jesus went up to Jerusalem to celebrate the Passover. This is the first one in John 2. There's another in John 6. And the third is first mentioned in John 11, but it provides the background for the whole final week of his life. John also mentions Jesus going up to Jerusalem for an unnamed feast in chapter 5, for the Feast of Tabernacles in John 7, and for the Feast of Dedication, also called Hanukkah, in John chapter 10. So feasts are going to play an important role in this gospel as we make our way through it. That's an aside. Now, at the end of verse 13, we read, Jesus went up to Jerusalem. So presumably with his disciples and his brothers and perhaps his mother, they travel up to Jerusalem to celebrate the feast of Passover. When he arrived, we're told in verse 14 that, quote, in the temple, he found those who were selling oxen and sheep and pigeons and the money changers sitting there. Now, pilgrims, both Jews and God-fearing Gentiles, traveled to Jerusalem from all over the empire, often covering long distances, both over land and sometimes over sea to get there. Most of them would have been unable to bring the animals that were necessary for both the feast itself and 
other sacrifices that they wanted to offer at the temple while they were there in Jerusalem. And so for this reason, merchants began selling animals to the pilgrims when they arrived for use in the temple. And while it hadn't always been this way, by Jesus's day, what we see is that these merchants were allowed to set up their tables within the temple precincts. Now, of course, they're not inside the sanctuary proper, but Herod's temple had been built with an outer court, which the Gentiles were allowed to enter in order to worship Yahweh. It was called the court of the Gentiles. And this was probably where those who were selling oxen and sheep and pigeons had set up shop. Now, of course, the pilgrims came from different parts of the empire and beyond, beyond uh, outside of Jerusalem and outside of Israel, different currencies would have been used. So when they arrived, they were required to exchange their money for the currency that was used by the temple merchants. And in addition to this, these feasts were an occasion for many Jews since they were in Jerusalem anyway, to pay the annual temple tax. And the temple authorities required that that tax be paid in Tyrian coinage because of its consistency and its high quality of silver. And this is why the money changers were there, to enable pilgrims to exchange their money for the approved currency of the temple and the merchants. Now, Jesus had no doubt attended the Passover feast in Jerusalem and seen all of this going on in the temple many, many times before. But this time, he responded differently because he had begun now his public ministry as the Messiah. And we see his response in verses 15 and 16. Look again, it says, And making a whip of cords, he drove them all out of the temple with the sheep and oxen. And he poured out the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. And he told those who sold the pigeons, take these things away. Do not make my father's house a house of trade. This event is often described as Jesus's cleansing of the temple. And that description seems appropriate. But before we discuss why, I want to explain my, this claim that Jesus' actions here to cleanse the temple did occur at the beginning of his public ministry. If all you had was John's account of the gospel, you would assume that that was the case. But most scholars have argued against that claim including obviously many liberal scholars, for one simple reason. The other three Gospels have Jesus doing the exact same thing at the end of his ministry, when he entered Jerusalem to celebrate the Passover feast for one final time, uh, leading up to his death on the cross. And so, these descriptions here in John 2 and in the other Gospels, at the end of his life, they're so similar that 
scholars argue that they must be describing the same event. So, they argue, John must have simply moved the story to the beginning of his gospel for thematic reasons, even though it happened much later in time. Now, for a number of reasons, which I'm not going to get into now, that doesn't seem to actually be the case here. Rather, John seems to be describing a different occasion, not mentioned in the other gospels, when Jesus cleansed the temple uh, at the beginning of his public ministry. And that, after all, would not be unusual, would it, for John to include material in his gospel that isn't in the other three. Indeed, John seems to have been intentionally providing us with, out of his own experience as a close friend and follower of Jesus, stories and sayings from the life of Jesus that were not already circulating in the existing records. So, consider what Jesus did then when he arrived in Jerusalem for the Passover, this time at the beginning of his public ministry, and he saw once again all the merchants and money changers plying their trade to the pilgrims in the court of the Gentiles within the temple complex in Jerusalem. We're told in verses 15 to 16 that he made a whip of cords and he drove them all out of the temple. Now, to be clear, I think it's probably true that the whip was mostly for the animals, not for people. But there's no doubt that this was an act of force and that it reflected a righteous indignation, anger about what was going on in the temple. And it presumed an incredible authority to do something about it, as if he was in charge of the temple. Now, both of those dynamics are reflected, I think, in the phrase which John records him saying in the process. He must have said a lot of things, but this stuck in the minds of his disciples. He said, take these things away. Do not make my father's house a house of trade. Some... Uh, translations will render this, whether here or in the account of his second cleansing of the temple, as how dare you make my father's house a house of trade. Jesus claimed a uniquely intimate and filial relationship with God. He called him his own father. And therefore, as God's seemingly unique son, Jesus also claimed the right then to dictate what was done in his father's house, the temple. The problem Jesus had with what was going on in the temple was that the merchants and the money changers had turned it into, quote, a house of trade. Now, it wasn't the fact that they were exchanging money and selling animals to pilgrims. There's no hint here, at least, that there was any kind of corruption going on. Perhaps there was, but that doesn't seem to be the point. In fact, we could see that this type of service was necessary. I mean, people couldn't bring the animals that they needed for the sacrifices. The issue was that they were doing this inside the temple complex inside his father's house. In fact, the other gospel writers record him saying these things 
when he cleansed the temple a second time. And these things that I'm going to reference give us a better understanding of what the problem was in Jesus' mind. So, for instance, in Mark eleven seventeen, he's recorded as saying to the merchants and money changers when he cleansed the temple a second time, quote, Is it not written, My house shall be called a house of prayer for all nations? But you have made it a den of robbers. Now, the Old Testament citation there, Is it not written, is from Isaiah 56, 6 and 7. And there the prophet is describing the day of final salvation, which is coming at the end when the Messiah arrives. And he says, And the foreigners who join themselves to the Lord to minister to him, to love the name of the Lord and to be his servants, everyone who keeps the Sabbath and does not profane it and holds fast my covenant, these I will bring to my holy mountain and make them joyful in my house of prayer. Their burnt offerings and their sacrifices will be accepted on my altar for my house shall be called a house of prayer for all nations. In other words, you see, in that day, a remnant of believing Gentiles who join themselves with a remnant of redeemed Jews in worshiping the Lord at his temple. And this is what the court of the Gentiles, you see, in Jesus' mind, was designed to be a reflection of a place where the Gentiles could join the Jews in worshiping Yahweh in the temple complex so that it might rightly be called a house of prayer for all nations. But instead, the Jewish leaders had allowed the merchants and money changers to turn the court of the Gentiles into a marketplace for their services. And obviously that made it impossible for the Gentiles to use it for the worship of the Lord. It was an act, you see, of utter disregard for the interests of the Gentiles who'd come to the feast to worship the Lord. And no doubt that was rooted in some degree of prejudice on the part of the Jews of that day. But worse than this, Jesus said what, that in doing this, the Jews had turned his father's house into, quote, a den of robbers. Now, that too is actually an Old Testament citation. It's from Jeremiah chapter 7, which if you know anything about Jeremiah, you know that's Jeremiah's come to be called this famous temple sermon because in that chapter, the prophet stood at the entrance of the temple and denounced Israel for coming there to worship the Lord while committing rampant idolatry and immorality in their daily lives outside of it. As if the Lord was indifferent to their blatant hypocrisy and and wouldn't see it and would accept their worship. Has this house which is called by my name, the Lord said through the prophet in Jeremiah 7.11, become a den of robbers in your eyes? And you see, Jesus, it seems, saw something very similar happening among the agents of the Jewish leaders in his day. As he would say later on, they were hypocrites. They were like whitewashed tombs, clean on the outside, full of death and uncleanness on the inside. In other words, they were going through the outward motions of worship, but neglecting the evil in their hearts. And that way they turned the court of the Gentiles into a marketplace, showing one of the corruptions of their hearts and manifesting their hypocrisy. 
Now, all of this, by the way, as we just stop for a moment, is a sober warning to us, isn't it? That Jesus Christ, the unique Son of God, the one whom God the Father has appointed as head over all to, and given to the church, the church which is his temple, sees through hypocrisy and worship. He knows when people are living lives of blatant idolatry or immorality during the week and then coming to join his people in corporate worship as if nothing was amiss. He's not fooled by outward performance of religious activity when we harbor sin in our hearts or in our private behavior. And while he is abounding in mercy, he's willing to forgive us of any sin, no matter how terrible, when we confess it to him, when we repent. Yet you see, he is outraged, as Jesus was here, when we try and worship him while maintaining our hypocrisy as if he was blind to it. Indeed, we all know he's not blind to it, don't we? And so when we try to worship him at church while harboring blatant sin and hypocrisy in our hearts and in our lives, it shows us that we really care more about the opinions of men than of our Lord Jesus Christ, who we know sees. In this way too, professing Christians, sometimes true Christians can turn the Father's house, the church, into a den of robbers. And it evokes the righteous indignation of our Lord, Jesus, just as it did in our passage. Now, knowing that, it ought to cultivate in us a holy fear of the Lord and motivate us to forsake hypocrisy. Oh, we're all going to be hypocrites at one level, aren't we? But there's a difference between those daily and weekly failings, which we confess and repent of and strive against, and a blatant, knowing harboring of sin and maintaining of hypocrisy. We ought to have a fear of the Lord. We ought to confess our sin and turn away from it so that we might worship the Lord with a clear conscience and sincerity of heart. Well, after Jesus had single-handedly driven the merchants and the money changers out of the temple by force, rebuking them on their way out, we're told in verse 17 His disciples remembered that it was written, zeal for your house will consume me. Now it's unclear whether they remembered this at the time or later on as as they did in verse 22. But at some point they connected Jesus' act with the words of David in Psalm 69 where David, the king of Israel, had lamented the way that he was being persecuted by the wicked for the sake of his own commitment to righteousness. And in the middle of this lament psalm, in verse 9, he says, For zeal for your house has consumed me, and the reproaches of those who reproach you have fallen on me. Now, like many utterances of David and the Psalms, the disciples came to recognize how these words had found their ultimate expression in Jesus as David's greater son, the Messiah. Like David, Jesus' commitment to righteousness would lead him to be attacked and devoured, consumed by the wicked. Of course, only in his timing, 
only for his purposes and only to accomplish the redemption that the Father had sent him to bring about. Nevertheless, this note in verse 17 seems to anticipate what happened next. Because after cleansing the temple of all this market activity, which the Jewish authorities had permitted, they confronted him. Now you can imagine they must have been outraged at the audacity of Jesus' actions and wondered who exactly he thought he was, that he had the right to do such a thing in direct contravention of their own authority. Now, given this, you might think that they would just walk up and arrest Jesus right away and take him away and punish him like, you know, security might do when a hooligan runs onto the field at a baseball game. In fact, you might wonder why they didn't do this before, as soon as he had started to clear out the temple. But the situation, I think, was not that simple. And if you look down at verse 23, I think you begin to see why. There it says, Now when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, many believed in his name when they saw the signs he was doing. Now that verse tells us that during this time in Jerusalem for the Passover, Jesus had been performing many signs, perhaps healing the sick and cleansing the lepers, casting out demons, so that many people were coming to believe in him, believe that he was the Messiah. Now, we don't know how much of that had already happened prior to him cleansing the temple, but clearly it was enough that the Jews, the Jewish authorities, had to be careful how they handled this person. We see what they did in verse 18. There it says, So the Jews said to him, What sign do you show us for doing these things? In other words, they demanded that Jesus prove that he had the right to clear out the temple in the way he did by performing a miracle right there on the spot in front of them. Perhaps they'd been hearing that he'd been performing miracles, but hadn't seen one themselves. Probably they thought he was a huckster. They didn't believe all the hubbub about him. And they thought that by challenging him in this way, they would expose him as a fraud because, of course, he couldn't really do one. But as always, with Jesus, it didn't quite work out the way they hoped. On the one hand, Jesus didn't really comply with their demand to perform a miracle right there and then. In fact, it's interesting the Gospels reveal several incidents where the Jews demanded that he show them a sign, prove himself by performing a miracle right there on the spot. And he always refused to do so. Jesus wasn't opposed to performing miracles that proved his identity. I mean, he did that throughout his ministry, right? And people are called to believe in the scriptures, in Jesus, on account of his works, of his miraculous signs. But he would not be manipulated by the demands of people who he knew to be insincere, who weren't really trying to find out the truth about him, but only in trying to prove him wrong. As the divine son of God, whom God the Father had chosen to be king over all forever, you see, Jesus didn't really need to prove himself to anyone in that way. Rather, as Jesus would later say in chapter 5, all humanity 
we're going to end up standing before him on the final day and giving an account for their lives. And he would determine their eternal destiny. By the way, it's important that all of us grasp this truth as well, isn't it? God has given mankind plenty of evidence which demonstrates the truth about himself and about the gospel of his son. We see the eternal power and divine nature of God reflected, displayed in his creation. And the miracles and the resurrection of Jesus, which are recounted for us from history in the pages of the New Testament documents, all of these testify to his identity as the Christ and the Son of God. God does not call people, in other words, to some blind leap of faith He doesn't demand that we believe in his existence or in his son, Jesus, apart from or contrary to any evidence. He has graciously provided an abundance of proof in the natural world, in the artifacts of history and elsewhere, which corroborate the truths he has revealed to us in the scripture. But this does not mean that he will countenance us, his human creatures who live in his world, arrogantly putting him on the witness stand and demanding that he prove himself to us. Beyond all the evidence that he's already given us, by the way. And to say, until he does so, we will not believe in him. Indeed, a person who does this makes clear they're not really seeking God at all, but are hardened by pride and unbelief and desperately need to repent before they perish in God's judgment, which rightly comes upon those who resist and oppose him in this way. But to all who will humble themselves and honestly seek to know the truth about him, He is willing to reveal himself. I think of his words to his old covenant people in Jeremiah 29, 13, which I think reflect his heart. You will seek me and find me when you seek me with all your heart. So read the scriptures. If you are seeking, pray that God would illumine your heart by his spirit to understand the truth about himself, about his son, Jesus Christ. I think it's 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 a fine prayer to say, Lord, I don't know, but if you are there, show yourself to me. And then don't wait for him to zap it into your head. Pick up the scriptures where he has spoken. See if he does not testify of himself in power to your soul. But though Jesus didn't comply with the Jews' demands that he sort of perform a miracle right there on the spot, yet he did offer them a sign that would indeed prove his right to cleanse the temple. And we see it there in verse 19. There it says, Jesus answered them, destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. Now remember, that interchange almost certainly took place in the temple precincts in Jerusalem. Jesus had just cleared the merchants and the money changers out of the court of the Gentiles. Perhaps that's where they were standing. And they had come to confront him right there in the temple. So when Jesus says, destroy this temple and in three days I'll raise it up. You see, there's no question they would have understood him to be referring to the building they were standing in. 
And from that vantage point, Jesus' statement would have seemed to them both shockingly absurd and sacrilegious. You can see this from their reaction. Look there in verse 20. The Jews thought his statement was shockingly absurd because they say, it has taken 46 years to build this temple. And will you raise it up in three days? Herod the Great had begun construction on this temple before Christ was born. And it wouldn't actually finally be completed until AD 63, 30 years after his death. But the Jews were saying here that it had taken 46 years to build the parts of the temple that were completed at that time. And they were incredulous at Jesus' absurd suggestion that if they destroyed it, he would rebuild the whole thing in three days. Now, of course, that's not what Jesus meant, but you can understand how they would have taken it that way. They also took his words as sacrilegious. We know this because at his trial, before the high priest, several years later, they brought up this claim as evidence that he should be put to death. For instance, Matthew 26, 61 says that two witnesses were finally found who would corroborate that he had said, to quote Matthew 26, 61, I am able to destroy the temple of God and to rebuild it in three days. What's interesting is if you search Matthew, Mark, and Luke, you don't find any record of Jesus saying anything like that. But when John wrote his gospel, he told us when Jesus did actually say something like that. Now, of course, the witnesses at his trial had misquoted Jesus. He did not say, I am able to destroy the temple of God and to rebuild it in three days, as they claimed. He had said to the Jews, destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. In other words, the Jews would do the destroying, Jesus would do the rebuilding. But it was important that they misquote him in this because what they were trying to do was to put him to death. And desecrating a temple was a capital offense in the Roman Empire. The original wording, though, of Jesus' statement is key to understanding what he meant by it. Jesus said to the Jews, destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. And though he left them in the dark, John explains to us what he had meant in verses 21 through 22. There it says, but he was speaking about the temple of his body. When therefore he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this, and they believed the scripture in the word that Jesus had spoken. In other words, the temple that Jesus was speaking about was his own human body. And the sign that he would provide to these Jews was that when they handed him over to the Romans to be put to death in the body, he would rise bodily from the dead on the third day. Now, we need to pause, and we just need to reflect a little more deeply on the significance of Jesus standing in the temple, identifying his body as a temple. More specifically, I want you to think about how that makes sense along two particular lines. First, Jesus' body, his human nature, was a temple in that As John had said in the prologue, do you remember? 
Jesus is the word who was God from the beginning and then became flesh and dwelt among us. In other words, God has dwelt among us as a man, Jesus. Just as Israel saw the glory cloud of the Lord dwelling in the tabernacle in days of old, now we see the glory of God as he has tabernacled among us in the flesh of the man, Jesus Christ. So then the human nature of Jesus Christ has become a sort of ultimate temple of God's presence. Because as Paul had put it in Colossians 1.19, in him the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. Think about that language. If you're in the old covenant, where does the fullness of God dwell? In the temple. But now he dwells bodily in Jesus Christ. But that now leads us to a second way that we must think about Jesus' claim that his body was a temple. I want to argue that when Jesus identified his body as a temple, he was identifying himself as the the ultimate temple, the, the true and final temple that would supersede that structure in Jerusalem and make it obsolete. You know, throughout John's gospel, Jesus would describe himself, as we're going to see, as the fulfillment of things in the Old Testament. So, for instance, in the Old Testament, the Lord, do you remember, gave Israel manna, bread, out of heaven to keep their bodies alive in the desert. Well, in John 6, Jesus describes himself provocatively as the true bread from heaven who gives eternal life to the souls of his people. In the Old Testament, it was very common for Israel's leaders to be called shepherds. And they were accused of being bad shepherds, shepherds who abused the flock and and killed the flock and led them astray. But in John chapter 10, Jesus described himself as the good shepherd who had come to give the people of God abundant life. In the Old Testament, it was also very common for Israel to be described as the vine of God, which never produced good fruit. No matter how much he watered it and pruned it and cultivated up the ground, it always didn't produce any fruit at all or bad fruit. But in John 15, Jesus describes himself as the true vine, whose branches will bear fruit, fruit which will remain. In each case, Jesus described himself as greater than what came before him in the Old Testament, fulfilling what those Old Testament realities could only provide a foretaste of, and thereby making them obsolete. You didn't need him anymore. You had something better in Jesus. It seems to me that this same type of thing was true with Jesus and the temple. John's gospel is clearly indicating that Jesus' body is a temple, but a greater temple than that structure in Jerusalem. God dwelling among us as a man is far better than, you know, the glory cloud dwelling in the inner room of the tabernacle or the temple. What's more, the fact that God had made his dwelling among us 
in this far superior way as the man Jesus Christ indicated that the temple in Jerusalem was now no longer necessary. We had something better. In fact, Jesus would make this explicit just two chapters later when he's talking to that Samaritan woman by the well of Jacob. And she asks him. She thinks she's asking him some difficult question because the Samaritans had built their own temple on Mount Gerizim and the Jews had their temple in Jerusalem. And of course, they hated each other and they refused to worship in each other's temple. And the Jews knew that they were right and the Samaritans were wrong. And so she draws Jesus into that debate and she says to Jesus, which temple should we worship in? This one, the Samaritan one, or the one in Jerusalem? And he says, you remember verse 21? Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. Here, Jesus announced that in short order, a time was coming. Even now is. People would no longer worship God at the physical structure, even the temple of the Jews in Jerusalem, which was, by the way, the right temple. The old covenant structure would become obsolete in short order. Instead, he went on to say in verse 23, the hour is coming and now is here when true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship him. And then later on in chapter 14, 6, he says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. See, Jesus had replaced the temple in Jerusalem as the locus of the worship of the people of God. No longer would they draw near to God at the temple. Oh, there would be a period of time where Jesus himself would still go up to the temple as the old covenant was still in place. But there would come a time when they would worship God by the Spirit through the one who is the truth and the way. God's Son, Jesus Christ. But when and how would Jesus render the temple obsolete in this way? Well, by the event that Jesus referred to in his reply to the Jews in verse 19 of our text. So he said, destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. And that referred to his death and his resurrection in the body. Now, of course, John's gospel doesn't fully disclose how this event is going to end up rendering the temple in Jerusalem obsolete. But you know who does, right? The writer of Hebrews. Hebrews 7 through 9. There he explained that Jesus, as our eternal high priest, in other words, we don't need any others, offered himself as a once-for-all sacrifice upon the cross, making full and final atonement for all our sins. No more sacrifices. And having risen from the dead and ascending into heaven, he entered into the, as the writer says, true tabernacle of God in heaven, where he ever lives now to make intercession for us, thereby securing our permanent access into the true holy places. So the author of Hebrews can say to us as Christians, provocatively, Hebrews 10, 19-22, Since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened up for us through the curtain, that is, through his flesh, 
And since we have a great high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. You see, when the curtain in the temple was torn in two upon Christ's death, it signified the age of the temple in Jerusalem was over. As the writer of Hebrews would put it, in the old covenant, with all of its institutions, including the temporal in Jerusalem, with all of its priests and its sacrifices, had been rendered, as he said, obsolete and was passing away. Because it had been fulfilled and replaced by the far greater ministry of Jesus Christ, to which it had always pointed, Jesus was now the true temple in that sinful human beings would come to know God through him alone and to enjoy fellowship with God through union with him, not in any physical structure on earth. In fact, when Christ ascended into heaven, we all know he actually poured out the person of the Holy Spirit into the hearts of his forgiven and sanctified people so that they now become a temple of his presence. Indeed, the New Testament repeatedly describes the church as a temple, a temple which is actually even now being built, built upon the foundation of Jesus, the cornerstone, and his apostles. Because every Christian, as we saw in Hebrews 10, 19 and following, has now been given direct access to God through the ministry of Jesus Christ and through the indwelling Holy Spirit. And now we enjoy fellowship with God that is unhindered by curtains or walls. So for instance, we read this in Ephesians 2, 18 through 22. For through him, we both have access in one spirit to the Father. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. So you see, when Jesus stood in the Jerusalem temple and he described his body as the temple, he was indicating he had come to fulfill and supersede everything the temple in Jerusalem represented and would one day make it obsolete. For us as Christians, you know, this truth comes with great privilege and responsibility, doesn't it? It reminds us that our sins have been fully atoned for so that we can now draw near to God in private or corporate worship with confidence, knowing we are accepted. We are in his permanent favor. It encourages us to bring our prayers and our petitions to God. We know that Jesus has granted us access to his throne of grace. It gives us hope that through every trial and tribulation that we encounter in this wilderness life, that God has put his spirit in us. He's made us, the spirit has become a seal for us, that we are God's possession, that he will return to claim us as his own on the final day. But it also warns us that we have to be serious about fleeing the defilement of the flesh 
serious about glorifying God in our bodies because 1 Corinthians 6.16, your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you whom you have from God. It warns us against unnecessarily dividing or breaking apart the unity of the church because 1 Corinthians 3.16, if anyone destroys the temple, God will destroy him for God's temple is holy and you are that temple. And of course, it means that every Christian church must be diligent to hold fast to the true gospel of Jesus Christ as taught in Scripture, lest the Lord come and remove our candlestick as a local church. And it be said of us, the glory has departed. And for any unbelievers here this morning, the fact that Jesus is the true temple, that means for you that he is the only way for you, for anyone, to come to God. You are not going to find the true God, your creator, by going to any temple building or any sacred site. You're not going to reach him through any man-made religion, any philosophical system. Jesus is the one and only meeting place between God and man. There are not many ways to God. Thank God there is a way. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. But he has opened a way for us as sinners to be forgiven of our sins and reconciled to God through his death on the cross. And his ascension into heaven and his resurrected body means that he is the advocate for sinners before the Father if they will trust in him. Peter put it this way. He said, For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God. And it's only by acknowledging your sin and your guilt, friend, crying out to him in faith to save you through his death and his resurrection that you can be reconciled to God and enjoy access to his throne of grace forever. And so if you haven't done that, I urge you now, come to God through Jesus Christ this morning. Trust him to save you by his grace. He will do it. The prophets of old predicted a time coming in the future, when the temple would be restored, it would be better than it was before, and Israel would finally experience the kind of fellowship with God that Adam and Eve had experienced in the garden, and a remnant of the nations would join them as well. The question is, when? And how would that happen? I want to argue the answer begins to be found right here in John 2 which tells us of a time when Jesus Christ stood in the precincts of the temple in Jerusalem and he said, destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. In other words, Jesus is the true temple and through his death and resurrection, he has secured for sinners who believe in him the fellowship with God that was lost at the fall. Soli Deo Gloria. Let's pray together. Our Father, we thank you for the truths recounted in this text, I pray that it would have been accurately explained. If anything that I have said is somehow incorrect, that it would fall to the ground, have no effect. But to the degree that I've unpacked your truth, the truth of Scripture, rightly, we pray that you would fill our hearts with it and let it dwell richly within us and have a deep impact upon our life for our good and for your glory. Amen.